Purim's coming up. One of the mitzvahs of Purim is that one should attain a state. Generally, it's uh, the way the sages describe it is it's induced chemically. But the, uh, the state is one in which one does not know the difference between blessed be Mordechai, the uh, hero of the poem story, and cursed is Haman, the, the, the villain of the story. It's what the sages call Adbalayav, until you don't know. And this whole notion of not knowing, what does it mean not knowing? Obviously it doesn't mean that a person doesn't know right from wrong, because that would be a terrible thing if you weren't able to distinguish between what is moral and immoral. But what it actually means is, look at the Purim story itself. The Purim story is absolutely crazy. Everything that looks like a good development ends up being a bad development. Everything that looks like a bad development ends up being a good development. The whole thing is, it's twisting and it's turning and it's surprising and nothing is what you think and nothing is what you expect. And basically that's a lesson about life. Adelayoga means that I honestly do not know, and I'm going to try to stop making judgments about what's a good development in my life, what's not a good development, what's a good event, what's not a good event, I don't know. And you look at the Purim story, and you're reminded of that, you know what, Hashem, even when he's hidden, even like in the Megillah, where Hashem's name is not mentioned at all, but even when Hashem is hidden, he's running the show. So I'm going to show up, I'm going to experience whatever there is to experience, and I'm going to try not to make judgments, because he's running the show. I know nothing. I'm looking at one piece of a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. I can't make judgments. And, uh, you know, as, as Jews, when we, when we think of faith, when we think of relying on Hashem, you know, there's not just faith. Faith is abstract. Faith can just be uh, a notion of uh, belief. But, but then there's trust. Trust is the emotional component. And God, we trust. Trust means you put your money where your mouth is. So it's not just as some philosophical ideal, I believe, but actually, I rely on this emotionally. Um, to be able to tap into joy when life is crazy. There's a famous story. Uh, the two brothers, Reb Zushi and Reb Elimelech, they were both students of the Magid, and uh, they used to travel around incognito, undercover, like uh, simple people, and they would raise funds for the poor, usually to get Jews out of uh, debtor's prison, which was common at the time. So they would do the, the mitzvah of redeeming captives. At any rate, they would uh, raise funds and then they would give all these, the, all the money away to uh, redeeming captives and they themselves were indigent. 
There was one time they came to a town and they had nowhere to sleep. They, they didn't have money to rent a place, so they were sleeping in the park. And uh, they were violating the uh, vagrancy laws, you know, loitering. So they were arrested and they were thrown in jail. And in the cell, you know, this was a very primitive setup. So, uh, you know, back in those days there, there was no plumbing. And there'd be an outhouse. But in this case, you know, you don't let prisoners go to an outhouse. So there was a latrine right there. What was it? There was a bucket in the middle of the cell. That was, that was, the, that was the bathroom. So Abzusha started to cry. And the Rebbe Elimelech, his brother, said, why are you crying? He says, I'm crying because I want to pray that the, uh, the sun is, is rising and it's daytime and it's time to pray the morning prayer. And, uh, and I can't because of this bucket of filth. Rebbe Elimelech says to Abzusha, he says, but don't, but don't cry. Why do you want to pray to God? Because it's God's will that a Jew should pray. God has asked every Jew to pray three times a day. But it's also God's will, as stated in his code of law, in the Shulchan Aruch, that when you're in such a situation where there's filth, that you're not permitted to pray. So normally, you would fulfill God's will by praying. In this case, we're fulfilling God's will by not praying. The Zosha says, yes, that's right. You're right, we're fulfilling God's will by not praying. And he got so excited, he got so happy, he got up and started dancing. And his brother, Abel started dancing. And all these hardened criminals around them, they couldn't help but be swept up in the, the excitement of, all, of it all. They stood up and they were clapping as the two brothers, these two Hasidic Jews, are dancing in the cell. The warden, who was a very cruel man came over and said, what's going on here? Why are these two Jews dancing? And the other uh, criminals there in the cell said, well, we don't fully understand it, but it has something to do with that bucket over there. The warden said, that's what's making them so happy that they're dancing? If that's the case, take it out of there. And they removed the bucket. And then took a look up. Now the, the room is clean. And they started dancing again, because now they were able to pray. Okay, I don't know how many of you <clears throat> have heard this story before. And um, I actually told this story not because it's the point that I want to talk about. It's actually the opposite of the point I want to talk about tonight. It's called Bait and Switch. That's a really wonderful story, and people like these types of stories. This is called, um, it all works out in the end, and you get to see the end. And I could tell you stories like that all night. There are such stories where we do get to see how what we thought was terrible ends up being, he broke his leg, but he missed the flight, and then the plane crashed. Hooray! You know, that's, that's easy to get excited about. What do we do when we don't see the end? When, when there's no end in sight? It, it, it's easy to have faith retroactively, after it all works itself out. And I don't want to tell you those kinds of stories tonight because not everybody here has had all their problems resolved yet. <coughs> I'm not saying you haven't made it through hard times and come out on the other end stronger and wiser. I'm sure you have. And maybe that's a topic for another lecture, another night. 
But tonight I want to talk about the lesson of Purim, which is how to tap into the joy, how to tap into the faith, how to tap into the trust when I don't see how it's going to work out. I heard a story yesterday from a friend of mine who's actually sitting right here, my friend Yechen uh, and Gordon. And I hope you'll forgive me. I wanted to make sure before I tell the story. You knew I was going to tell this. I would steal your story. You're not going to tell me a good story. I wouldn't steal. Okay. I think he's you're publishing it soon. But I'm going to whatever. I'm saying it first before you can publish it. But you know how it works. Stories are not safe with me. Or maybe they're very safe. They're safe to be repeated to everyone that I see. Um, and I hope you also don't mind that to make sure that I was saying it correctly before I said it in public, I contacted your cousin, Rishi Deitch. And she had um, her father, Yisro, uh, actually was present for the climax of this story and told it to her. And uh, she just told it to me today. So. I hope you don't mind, I'm still in your story. Okay. There was a town in Russia, Shtetl, called Dokshitz, where the Gordons are from, right? Okay. And uh, the Gordons left, when did they leave? In the 30s? Um, that was very unusual, very uncommon. Uh, most of the town remained behind, and most of the town was uh, wiped out in, in the Holocaust. When the Germans, when they pushed eastward, we know about the, the fate of the Jews in, in Eastern Europe, and, and especially in Russia, they weren't even deported on, in, in, in cattle cars to, to concentration camps, they were, these were the Jews who were murdered in mass graves and in the forests and in their towns. And that's, that's what happened to the, the community of Dokshitz. And there was a rav, there was a rabbi there, a Lubavitcher rabbi. He had actually studied in the town of Lubavitch, in Yeshiva Toim And he was known as a very pious and very spiritual Jew. A um, little background about him is that one time this, uh, this, this Rav, his name was Reb Arya Leib Shenin, this Reb Leib, he, before he was a rabbi, went back when he was a yeshiva bacher studying in Lubavitch, he went back home, I believe he lived in Babrusk, and he went back home as a yeshiva bacher, and another chassid says he remembers walking down the street, and somebody came outside and said, we need a center, we need a tenth man from Mincha. And there was another Bacher who was also learning in Lubavitch at the time, uh, Avram Karish, and he was brought in, and he comes into Davin Mincha, and he says, but hold on a second, you have a tenth man over there. They said, no, we can't count him because he's not normal. And he says, that's my friend Leib, Label, you know, he's, he, he's, 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 he's totally normal, though, where you could count him. Why did they not count him? He'd been sitting there since dawn, since the morning, and it was afternoon, and they were davening mincha already, and he was still davening shachas. 
That was his, that was his way. So, at any rate, this same uh, Reb Leib, he went out and he became a Rav, and he was the Rav of the town of Dokshitz. And uh, long story short, when the Nazis, Yimach came into Dokshitz, they rounded up every man, woman, and child in the town and forced them into the shul, into the main synagogue. And it was the afternoon, and Reb Leib, as was his custom, was still Davin and Chakras. He was still engaged in the morning prayer. And in fact, he was at first oblivious to the goings-on around him. But after a while, he realized what was happening. And when the Nazis locked the doors with everybody inside the shul and began to set fire to the building, he understood very well what was happening. And at that moment, he got up and he addressed his congregation for one final address. And he said to them that in the times of the Beis Hamikdash, in the times of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, one who brought a sacrifice had to have pure intent, he had to have kavana, in order for his sacrifice to be accepted. We have no temple, we cannot bring the sacrifices ordained by the Torah, but we, beyond our choice, against our will, we are being made to sacrifice ourselves. And so too, our intent has to be pure. Let's not taint this moment, understanding that there was no way to escape, no way to, to survive. He said, let everyone here have in mind that he is a pure sacrifice for Hashem. And with that, he ecstatically began to sing the nigun, the melody of Hakafas, a dance song, a celebratory song that one sings on Simchas Torah. And he began to dance, he began to sing in, 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 in rapt joy. And as others began to sing with him, the Nazis outside, they heard this and they were so upset they unlocked the doors momentarily. They made their way through the flames and they stabbed him to death there in the shul and there he died. They left, the Nazis left, they locked the doors again and the entire shul burned down and every single person there died. Okay, not exactly like the Reb Zoshin Melech with the bucket of filth in the cell. I'm sorry, I don't have a happy ending for this story. There were a few people who were hiding in a cellar, a potato cellar, a little shallow uh, area in the ground. They jammed themselves in there. They, they survived. One of these survivors came out of Europe after the war and in the autumn of 1946 came to New York and reunited with a landsman with your great-grandfather, with Reb Yechman Gordon, who at that time was uh, living in Crown Heights, and he was the Gabbai in 770. And it was Sukkot. They, they had their reunion in the Sukkah, an unplanned reunion. Reb Yechman didn't even know he was going to see 
somebody from, from the old, uh, from the Altaheim, from the old home. And uh, they had this reunion, and obviously they started to reminisce and to talk about everyone that they knew back in Dokshitz and what had become of them. And uh, this survivor tells his friend who had gotten out in the 30s, tells Rabbi Yechman who had gotten out with his family in the 30s, way before the war, he told him the story about the terrible end of the, the community of Dokshitz and then the story of how Reb Leib, how the Rav, spoke this fiery, passionate sermon in his last moments and then began to sing and to dance until the, these Roshoyim, Rimachimon, came in and, and, and murdered him in cold blood. And, and, and he cried, the, the survivor, as he related all this, he cried bitter tears and, and added, that Nebuch, that in the end, unfortunately, as I believe, is given a rock from Zinni. Yiddish, that means that Rebbe lost his mind. He cracked. Literally, a rock from Zinni means he went below common sense, he went below logic, he fell beneath the mind, went lower than the mind. And uh, and Gordon vehemently objected. He says, nay, nay, no, no. As given hechefudzin. He went above the mind, he went above logic. That leg rose above what the mind can fathom. He didn't fall below. This wasn't the person who, in his inability to bear what was happening, lost his mind. This was a person of faith who understood that he can't understand. And the only place to go with that is to transcend, to rise above the mind. You want an explanation? There's no explanation. Sorry. Somebody once asked Elie Wiesel, how do you explain the Holocaust? Elie Wiesel said, if I'll give you an explanation that would help you sleep at night, how are you different than a Nazi? I don't have an explanation. You want an explanation? I don't have an explanation. And when we're faced with something for which there's no explanation, there's two directions we can go. We can lose our minds and go beneath, below logic, intellect, common sense. Or we can cling to our trust in God, not just belief, but trust, to really feel it emotionally, to rise above intellect. I once heard somebody say, As I look back through my life at every time I thought that my life was falling apart, I can now see that it was falling into place, but I had to get used to falling. Sometimes we're falling for a long time. And we don't see the ground. 
You know, they say that when God closes one door, he opens another. But it sure is hell in the hallway. Sometimes the hallway is a long hallway, and there's no end in sight. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. By the way, you know why they say New Yorkers are so mean? Because the light at the end of the tunnel was New Jersey. Sometimes we don't see the end of the hallway. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're falling and falling and falling. We don't know when it's going to end. I mean, sometimes not. Sometimes there's a resolution. Sometimes we see how it all works out. That's beautiful. That's beautiful when that happens. But what about when it doesn't? I once saw a letter that Rebbe wrote to somebody, and obviously, you know, you don't see the person's letter to the Rebbe. The Rebbe wrote tens of thousands of uh, correspondences, many of which are, are published in the Igor's Kodesh. I once saw a letter that Rebbe wrote to someone. I don't know what their letter said, but obviously they were going through a hard time. And Rebbe wrote to them, you have to have more bitochim. You have to have more trust in Hashem. And then, and for me, this is so, this is just golden. The Rebbe says, and in case you don't know what bitochim is, I will define it for you. Now that, that to me was gold. The Rebbe defined bitochim. He defined trust in Hashem. And he, and he says it in, in, in just a couple of sentences. It's just so poignant and so sweet. Rebbe says to this person, you need to have more bitochim, more trust in Hashem, and in case you don't know what bitochim is, I will tell you. You know that feeling of complete calm that you will have when this whole situation is resolved and behind you? Bitochim means having that feeling right now. You know the feeling of complete calm you'll have when the whole situation is resolved and behind you? The talking is having that feeling right now. The talking means I don't have to see yet how it's going to get resolved. I don't have to know how it all works out. All I have to do is believe and have trust that it all works out. Hashem is running the world. Hashem has his plan. And I know nothing. I know nothing. It's a story in the Medrash. One of the uh, Tanoyim, one of the sages of the Mishnah, maybe Yeshua ben Levi, once asked Elio Anovi if he could accompany him on his travels in this world. Rabbi Shuman Levi often had Gilui Elio, who was able to experience a revelation of Elijah the prophet. So Rabbi Shuman Levi once asked if he could accompany Elio. Medish says that Elio told Rabbi Shuman Levi that he could come along, but it was on condition that he asks no questions, and that if he'll ask any questions, their time together is over. Rabbi Yeshua made the agreement. He 
He's not going to ask any questions. First place where Rabbi Yeshua and Eliyahu arrived was a an old shack where a husband and wife, an old couple, lived. They were clearly very poor, but they were hospitable. They were very kind. And they took in these two strangers, not knowing that it's Elijah the prophet and, and uh, the great sage, Rabbi Yeshua. They just saw two Jews and they welcomed them in, took care of them. And that's where they uh, spent the night. In the morning as they left, Rabbi Yeshua sees that Elio is davening. He's praying. And he listens. What's Elio praying? And he overhears. Elio is saying to, he's praying, he's, he's saying to Hashem, may it be your will that the cow of this poor couple, the cow which their only livelihood was for milking the cow, may it be your will that the cow should die. And Rabbi Yeshua couldn't understand this because here this couple was hospitable and so kind and they have so little and yet the little they had they shared it and all they really have as far as survival for our livelihood was this cow and now Elio is praying and this is how he repays them. He prays to God that the cow should die and clearly a prayer of Elio has very high chances of being answered and what's going on? And Rabbi Yeshua wanted to blurt out what, what is this? But under the rules. No questions. That was the agreement, so he kept quiet. The next place where they came to the, the following night was a very, very uh, well-appointed mansion. There was a wealthy man who lived there. And uh, he was not so nice with that. He, uh, he didn't want to feed them. He gave them some scraps of uh, crusts of bread. He'd give them a normal room to stay in. He'd have them stay outside with the animals. It was very, very not nice. And uh, the next morning as they were leaving, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi overhears, Elio is dominating again. And what is he saying? He says, Hashem, may it be your will that the weakened wall in the home of that rich man should stand strong for many, many years. Apparently there was a wall that was structurally compromised, and Elio was doubting that that wall should be sturdy, should be fine. And Rabbi Yeshua wants to blurt out, what is the, why are you praying that something good should happen to this, to this guy, especially in light of yesterday's prayer, where you're praying that the cow should die for the poor couple. But he knew the rules, he got to stay quiet. Then they came to a town that had a very lavish synagogue, but everyone there was very mean and, and selfish, and they couldn't find a place. Nobody would take them in. The shul was gorgeous, but nobody would take them in, and they ended up having to sleep in the synagogue on benches, and they, they didn't eat that night. And as they left, Elio blessed the people. He said to the denizens of this town, May it be Hashem's will that all of you should be great leaders. And they left. The next day they came to another town. This town, the shul, was very meager. It wasn't so well put together. The people were clearly poor. But they were kind. They were loving. Everybody fought over who's going to bring in the guests. And whatever they had, they shared. And the next morning, Elio, he blessed them. He says, may it be Hashem's will that none of you, 
except one will be a leader. At this point, Rabbi Yeshua couldn't take it anymore, and he says, I, I know the rules, but I cannot continue traveling with you when every single thing that happens is unfathomable. Everything is counterintuitive. I know I'm going to forfeit my right to travel with you, but what's happening here? And uh, Elio Hanavi says, okay, about to say goodbye now because you, you broke the rules, but if you really got to know, I'll leave you with these explanations. First of all, you should know when we came to the poor husband and wife, that poor couple, uh, the angel of death had come. He was on the way. And he was going to take the wife. She was supposed to die. And you know that the angel of death, once he's on the way, he will not leave empty-handed. So I pray that he should take the cow instead. That's replaceable. We came to the wealthy man's house. I want you to know something. He bought that house. Previous owners of that house, they hid gold in the wall. The wall was getting rickety, and it was going to fall apart. And I knew he was a miser. He would never pay a worker to come fix the wall. He would want to do, you know, a do-it-yourself job. And he would discover the gold, and he surely did not deserve it. So I pray that that wall should stand strong for many years. Maybe the next owner of that house will be more deserving. We came to the town that they had the lavish shul, but nobody wanted to, to, to practice hospitality. I saw these are not nice people, so I, I gave them a blessing that they deserve. They should all be leaders. There's nothing more destructive for a community than everybody trying to be number one, right? Too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And then the next town, the town where they were poor, but they were kind, I gave them a real blessing that one of them should be a leader. And then in that town there would be harmony. And now, we have to part ways, because you couldn't just follow along without asking questions. And that was the end of Rabbi Yeshua's traveling with Eliyahu Anabi. I don't know, what would you have done? I don't know if I would have held out that long. What's the point of the Medrash? Point is, it doesn't matter if I can fathom an explanation. It doesn't matter if I can come up with the answer that would make it all okay. You know what? Sometimes the explanation is beyond what I could come up with. As the uh, Sefer Ikrim Famously, famously says, the old adage quoted by so many of the Jewish thinkers and philosophers, what can I say about God? What can I say about God? How can we describe the undescribable and the unknowable? What can we say? Sefer Yikram says, If I would know him, I would be him. If I could come up with an explanation for why God does what he does, I would be God. I don't know. I don't know why everything happens. I don't know why anything happens. Some things I see the resolution quickly. Some things I see the resolution after waiting it out for a while. And some things, I want to tell you, some things I will never see the resolution until Mashiach. 
Mashiach will come. Mashiach will give an answer. But until such time, there are certain things that are unanswerable. There's no answer. I can't come up with the answer. I can't even wrap my mind around the answer. I'm sure people in this room remember, you're old enough, I remember in uh, 19, was it 1988, the Pan Am bombing? The one, the, the flight from, uh, from, it blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland, that's right. It was, uh, I think it was from uh, Frankfurt, Germany, to London Heathrow, to New York, to Detroit. That was the routing. And it blew up over Scotland, and uh, everyone on the plane died, the whole, all the passengers, all the crew. And then the debris from the aircraft actually killed people on the ground there in Scotland. It was a, just a terrible, terrible tragedy. One of, the, one of the passengers on that flight was a Jewish boy from London. And his parents, about a year after his passing, came to the Rebbe, came to 770 on a Sunday morning when the Rebbe would stand and give out dollars. The, uh, the dollars, I mean, you can look it up. It's on, it's uh, actually, I just watched the video before I came over here. Um, it's from the month of Kislev from uh, Tafshin Nun, 5750, which means the very end, the de December of uh, 1989. Lockerbie was December of 88, so this is just a year after. This is just a year after. And uh, this young man's parents come to the Rebbe. And the, the, the dialogue is in Yiddish. But the mother, the mother asks, how are we supposed to live with this? How are we supposed to live with this? And, and you know, for a moment you think to yourself, get ready because the Rebbe is very wise. And the Rebbe is going to explain how they're supposed to live with it. Get ready, get ready for an answer. And the Rebbe says to these parents, We need Mashiach to come. Mashiach will come. Mashiach will explain to us. Mashiach will answer all these questions. The Rebbe did not attempt to console them with an answer. The Rebbe did not try to give them an explanation that would make it all right. To the, to the contrary, the Rebbe said, I don't have your answer. Mashiach owes us an answer. And you watch the video and you see the response of the parents, especially the mother, because at that point the mother's standing right in front of the Rebbe. And you see, you can visibly see the weight lifted from her. And, and I won't say a, a look of, of joy because she's a, a, a grieving woman, but a, a look of immense relief. The relief that there isn't an answer. Mashiach will have to come and explain it to us. And, 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 and the mother is, she says, she says it twice, she says, Mashiach, Mashiach, like, like uh, of course, of course. And uh, 
as they move on. You know, it's just a minute interaction. And uh, the Rebbe gives them dollars for giving tzedakah back in England where they're, where they're headed. And as they walk away, the Rebbe adds one more line. It says that Hashem shouldn't give us any more questions that we have to ask Mashiach. The Rebbe didn't try to answer it. The Rebbe didn't try to explain it. The Rebbe didn't try to make it okay. You know, there's a famous letter that the Rebbe wrote to uh, Ben Tzvi when he was president, when he was uh, Nasi of Medinat Yisrael. And the Rebbe writes to him that this letter is also printed in the Igris. And the Rebbe says, I hope you will forgive me that I'm not using the title Nasi because that title has religious implications. And it's actually a title that will also be used to describe Mashiach, who will be a king, who will be a ruler. And I can't use this term for a political office. I can't bring myself. And the Rebbe is writing extremely respectfully. It, it, basically, the Rebbe is saying, I can't do it. And then the Rebbe gets very personal and vulnerable in a way that you don't see very often at all. The Rebbe says that since the age that I went to Cheder, and even earlier, okay, the Rebbe is described, describing himself as a toddler. He said, the image of the future redemption began to take form in my mind. I began to imagine what it will be like when Mashiach will come, and that all the persecution and that all the suffering and all of the, the unfathomable pain that the Jewish people have endured through the ages will somehow all make sense. And that this redemption that I began to imagine would have to be one so great and so unfathomably, powerfully good that in its light, everything we experienced until then all of a sudden will make sense? He says, no. Until such a revelation like that will, will, will come, I'm sorry, I cannot bring myself to use this title, to use this term. In other words, you know, there was among supporters of the, the, the security of Israel and the strength of the Israeli, Israeli military, that Ebu was definitely a, probably one of the strongest voices. And yet, certain words that Ebu said, no, I support you, I encourage you, I want a strong Israel, I want a secure Israel, but I'm not going to pretend that this I'm not going to pretend that what we have, by having a state, makes okay everything that we've been through as, as a nation and as individuals and all the pain. No, it doesn't. No, not yet. Now, I'm holding out for something a lot bigger. And this isn't it yet. It's not it yet. I'm holding out. The Rebbe goes on, he says, he quotes the verse, he quotes the prophet, and he says, I'm waiting and I've been waiting my whole life for the fulfillment of the prophecy. 
The Prophet says that when Mashiach comes, that we will say, Eid Kho Hashem Asherenaftabi. I thank you, Hashem, for having acted angrily toward me. Not I forgive you in spite of the way that you treated me. I thank you for the pain. I thank you for the difficulty. I'm sorry. That's not lip service. You can't say that until it's real. And there's just certain things, like what the Rebbe told to those parents who lost their child on that airplane. We're not going to have an answer until Mashiach comes. So let's not pretend. There are no answers. I don't have an answer. We need Mashiach. That's the answer. When Reb Leib Shainan, the Rav of Dokshitz, was being martyred, he didn't see an answer. He didn't have an explanation of why this is good or how it could ever possibly be good. He wasn't trying to explain it. He had faith and he had trust that somehow God knows what he's doing. Somehow in a way that is way, 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 way beyond human intellect, in a way that only makes sense to God, there is a method to this madness. But from a mortal perspective, it's madness. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna candy code, I'm not gonna pretend otherwise. That's going beneath human logic. That's losing your mind, that's denial. It's unfathomable pain. I have no answer for it. And yet, I don't know. God knows what he's doing. That's, that's the porn story. You think that whole thing got resolved? Like, you know how long that, that decree was hanging over their heads? Do you know how long the Jews were living with this palpable threat of, of genocide? The story of Purim isn't that it all worked out well in the end. The story of Purim is that Jews rallied together for a whole year when they had no idea, when it looked like everything was lost. And they didn't know how it's going to end, but they know that Hashem has a plan. This is how we celebrate Purim. I have no idea. Is Haman the bad guy? Is Mordechai the good guy? I don't know. What I think was a good day, was it really a good day? What I think was a bad day, was it really a bad I don't know. I don't. I, you know what? I want permission not to have to make a judgment. Because I don't know. I'm not God. You know, as far as, you know, making distinctions between you know, good and bad. Okay, morality. I have to be responsible to make moral choices. I have to know wrong from right. Okay, from my behaviors. From my behaviors, I have to know what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. No problem. But as far as the way God's running the universe, please, I don't know. And I reserve the right. to let go of trying to make it all make sense and to accept the fact that God knows what he's doing and that someday when Mashiach will come there will be an explanation 
just share with you one more story. This is a story that um, I heard from um, Miriam Adahan. She made Aliyah in, I think, 1983. And in the absorption center, where all the new Olim uh, Chadashim were being uh, processed, and then they would attend Wulpan, she befriended a Persian Jewish woman, a woman, uh, a widow, who had four children. And this, this Persian woman, Persian Jewish woman, um, Mary Madihan didn't really know her story, but she, she saw she had very regal bearing, and which was interesting because the woman uh, worked as a postal clerk. She worked in a post office, but she sensed that she had very regal bearing. And finally, after they knew each other for a while, um, they uh, opened up to each other. And uh, this Persian Jewish woman told her story. We all know that in 1979 there was a revolution in Iran. Hopefully, very soon there'll be a revolution against that revolution. Um, but there was a, a major power shift. The Shah was thrown out, and the Ayatollah came to power. And it was not good for the Jews. This woman's husband, they both came from very uh, middle-class families, very comfortable, affluent. And for generations, they had really enjoyed a prosperous life in Persia. And then overnight, the revolution came, and uh, things got really bad really fast to the extent that uh, they didn't even really see it coming when um, the thugs, the government's own thugs, came into their store and they murdered her husband in the store. So that was it. She says, I'm getting out of here. We can't stay here. Now, it was illegal to travel. So she found a guy. There was a guy, uh, a criminal who would smuggle people out of Iran, smuggle them into Turkey over the mountains. And she got together all of her cash and all of her jewelry, and she paid him to smuggle her and the four children. Now, of course, she couldn't sell anything to liquidate her assets, or they would know that something's going on, they would have stopped her. Um, she just told the kids, everyone just packed a bag, one night, overnight bag, and that's it. She left her house and her furniture and everything, all everything from generations. Just everyone just packed the bag. She told the kids were going out for a night, and a truck came and picked them up, and they just drove in the middle of the night. They drove and they drove and they drove and they drove until they got so far away from, from Tehran, so far from the city, uh, they came to the mountains, and they got out of the truck, and in the mountains you can't drive, there are no roads, and they uh, rode upon camels. And they rode for days, 18 hours a day, on camels. And uh, in fact, the, this woman, this mother, this widow, she, for the rest of her life, she had severe back problems from sitting on a camel 18 hours a day for several days. And uh, 
Then when they got to the place in the mountains where the passages are too narrow and you can't ride camels, they switched to donkeys. And they were literally riding on the precipice at each turn, at each wind in the road. Literally, if the donkey would step another few inches, you'd go tumbling into the abyss below. And this was her and her four children. And the youngest one was three years old, a toddler, and, uh, and this guy. And every time they would whimper or they would complain, this very gruff and very serious, this, this, this guy, he would look at them with, 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 a, with a look that, that, that could kill, and he would say to them, keep moving or I'll shoot you. So there's no one to talk to. There's no one where they're supposed to, well, what can they do? They have no option there. They can do nothing but comply. They got through the mountains, they came to a river, they had to walk through this river. The, it was, the current was so strong, they, they were walking through a river that it washed away all their shoes and socks. Uh, they had the little toddler on, on their shoulders going through the river. Then they came out of the river, so now they're barefoot. And then they had to walk through a, a desert full of cactus plants, and they're walking through the needles, the, the sharp thistles from the plants and their feet are being caught and every step is excruciating. This is for miles, this isn't for a few feet, this is miles and miles. And every time they would whimper or give any sort of complaint, show any signs of slowing down, this is marching, you know, 18 hours a day, and, and any time they show any type of complaint, so this very gruff, this very serious guy who would look at them and say, if you don't keep marching, I'm gonna shoot you. Finally, they came to a, a ravine. And across the ravine is this flimsy little rope bridge. You can barely call it a bridge. Just two ropes and a bunch of wooden slats in between. And this is, and, and she sees, the mother sees the frayed rope. She sees the, 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 the creaking splintered wood. And she and her four children are supposed to walk across this, this rope bridge. And she freezes, she cannot do it. And she turns around and the guide already has his gun drawn, and he says, you cross the bridge or I'm gonna shoot you. <clears throat> she had no choice. And fueled with anger and rage, she takes her, her toddler on her shoulders and she and the other three children, they go across the bridge and they come out on the other side. And as they gather at the other side of the ravine, they look at the man, and he almost looks like he is he's somebody else. He has a soft look, a, a human look, they haven't seen since they met him. And he looks at them, and he says, I am also a Jew, and I'm so proud of you. You are all giborim, you are all heroes. And I want you to know that the entire time I have felt nothing but pride and love for all of you. But I knew that if I didn't drive you like this, if you thought that there was any compassion within me whatsoever, you wouldn't make it, you would not have the courage to drive, you would not have made it this far. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry I had to appear that way to you this entire time. But I want you to know how proud I am of you. 
And with that, he turned around, went across the ravine on the bridge, and he disappeared, and headed back to Iran to smuggle out more families. So this widow, the mother in the story, she tells her uh, harrowing tale, and her newfound friend, this American Allah uh, Kadash is struck that this that this story is not just the story of the Persian widow, but this is the story of each one of us. That there are times when we see how everything works out. There are times when if you just wait, if you're just patient, you'll see that God's got something in store for you. But you know what? There are other times when until we make it to our final destination, until we make it to Mashiach, we're not going to have that explanation. We're not going to have that, that revelation that God was really with us and it was compassion and love and pride that he felt for us all along. Now, sometimes it's like the Purim story. You look for God and you don't see God. In the whole Megillah, you don't have one mention of the name of God. And it looks like nature and randomness and cruel fate is running reality and God is nowhere to be found and nowhere to be seen. And sometimes it's like that for a real long time. And we have to remember something. We don't know. We don't know. We don't have the capacity to know. There are some answers that we are not going to ever understand until Mashiach comes. That's the only answer. But what are we going to do? We're going to be mournful, we're going to grieve, we're going to be anxious until Mashiach comes and explains? No. Adelayada means that even when I'm going through this, there's no end in sight, and I don't know how long it's going to be, and I, I don't know what's happening, and I can't explain it, and I... To do this, to go through this with joy, like, like Reb Leib and the Shul and Dokshitz. I don't need an explanation. I'm not expecting an answer right now. God knows what he's doing. God is perfect. Every moment that he creates is somehow unfathomably perfect. There's joy and there's purpose and there's meaning in this moment of darkness and pain and inexplicable suffering as well. That's, that's Adoliyoda, that's poor. I can be joyful, I can be calm, I can find my serenity, my trust in God, right now, before it all works out. Before the answer comes. Even when I'm going through something that has no answer other than Mashiach. And Hashem should send us already Mashiach now. Thank you.